Well, good morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I am one of the pastors here. And on behalf of the leadership and the staff here at Christ Community Church, we would like to welcome you um, and thank you for joining us for worship. If you're visiting with us for the first time, there um, is a handout you should have received on the way in. It has um, the back page as a tear-off portion where you can uh, give us your information and let us know how we can be praying for you so that we might be able to uh, know how to best serve you moving forward. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. I'm launching a uh, few weeks sermon series um, called Overflow. And, and when people talk about generosity, they're typically thinking like, okay, um, they're just going to hit us up for money. I want to let you know that money is important for a nonprofit corporation and money is something that God has created. But that's not ultimately the aim of this series. The aim of this series is for us to understand and enjoy the fact that we serve a very generous God. We were created in the image of this God, and He has been overwhelmingly generous to us, and therefore, in response, invites us to be a generous people. Serving a generous God calls us to be a generous people. Now, when we talk about generosity, um, that usually makes some people uncomfortable. In fact, uh, I began asking people that I, I recently met or am meeting in different environments, do you consider yourself a generous person? And so I would ask that for you to write that down. Am I a generous person? And most of the time, when we, when we ask that question, immediately everyone responds with, yeah. I have not yet met one person that's like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not generous at all. I've never met anybody that's like, man, I am super stingy. Now, I have had people tell me when they talk about their finances that they're quote-unquote tightwads, but then when I say, okay, but do you consider yourself generous? They're like, yeah, yeah, I'm generous. And they, they, they tell me what they do to be generous. But I, I want to deconstruct a little bit the idea that generosity is merely something we do. Generosity is a part of who we are called to be. Because generosity isn't just something that God does. Generosity is a part of God's character. And so I hope to unpack that for us as we go through this time. The definition in our language of generous is showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time than is strictly necessary or expected. Giving more than necessary or expected. That's the idea of generosity. And so today I want us to focus on God, a generous God. We serve a very generous God. And my main point is this, God has always provided exactly what his people need when they needed it. God has always provided exactly what his people need when they needed it. From the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1, when, 1 and 2, when God created all things and he created man and he created woman, he gave them himself. He gave them all the food they needed to have. They gave, he gave them great environment of enjoyment and opportunity to engage with him and engage with each other. There was no concept of real transaction because it was all relationship. In Genesis chapter 3, when man and woman decided that they, it would be better to go their own way and to ignore that which God had commanded, and they went after their own things, and they ate the fruit they should not eat, there was a switch that took place from relationship to transaction. Sin separated man and woman from their God, who is perfect. And God would have been right in just that moment to absolutely punish them and destroy them. And they did have to face consequences for their action. But the end of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, I want us to focus on God's generosity even in the midst of betrayal. He says this, the word of God says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and he clothed them. As he was sending them out of the garden in isolation, as they were now aware of their shame and their nakedness, God created and made for them coverings and gave them something to cover their shame, even in the midst of ultimate betrayal. That was a generous act. And we see throughout all of scriptures in Exodus, when God provides the Ten Commandments, He gives them guidelines for how to live their lives as God's people in faith with Him. It's mercy for Him to give them the law and to give them commandments. He could have left them guessing and then just facing punishment and consequences, but instead God in His generosity gave His law. Not so that we could work to earn God's favor, but we would know how to live in response to God's favor by being called His people. All the way to the point where God shows his generosity fully by giving his only son. And so we're going to slow down and look at a story that is a time where Abraham was tested in his faith to sacrifice his own son as an act of obedience to show whether or not he really believed God was who he says he is and that he would do all that he has promised to do. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, let's, let's slow down. I don't know about you, I'm not one that likes to sit in uncomfortable passages of Scripture. Well, that's a lie. I do enjoy sitting in uncomfortable Scripture because it, it challenges me, right? And it, it forces me to think, like, what would we do? What would we do if God said, hey, trust me, take your son, offer him as a completely burnt offering? Like, uh, it, it, notice it doesn't say just terminate his life. It doesn't say just kill him. He's saying return him to ashes. Right? That would be a hard invitation to receive, Right? I mean, we have a hard time like being kind to our spouse. Right? We have a hard time doing a lot of things. And he tells them, Abraham, they've been journeying together now for a while. God had given them his promised son that they had waited for until late in life. His only son that he was given. And he's commanded, go and give this only son whom you love. So it wasn't even like one of the kids he just didn't really care for. Right? Or the one like the, wasn't like the least favorite of the lot, man. It was the one he'd been promised, the one he had waited for, and God's telling him, go sacrifice, destroy your son. Now, we have to understand that God is creator, and therefore since God is creator, God is owner, and since God is owner, God can command to do whatever he wishes and whatever he wants. And so he commands Abraham. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Again, he's obeying God to terminate his son, to destroy him to ashes, and he calls it worship. 
His obedience is worship. Worship is giving our attention, our affections, our allegiance to God. Worship is giving our attention, meaning our thoughts are aligned with Him and His will and His kingdom. It's our affections aligning with what God is affectionate about, which God's primary affection is His glory. And then this loyalty, part of our worship is being loyal to God even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Trusting God, having faith. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do we not understand that all that we do is a form of worship? We're either worshiping God and obeying Him, or we're worshiping something or someone else. We are giving value and worth. And even in this moment where he's being asked the unimaginable, or commanded the unimaginable, to utterly destroy his son to ash, he says they'll go worship, and they call it worship. I don't know about you, but it it seems like most of us hold a belief that worship is pleasurable and good, and we gauge good worship based on our experience and how we feel and what we feel. That was good worship, good music, good sermon, good, you know, good, uh, good prayer time, good Lord's Supper, yummy Hawaiian bread, wherever you go with that. That was good worship, and bad worship is bad sermon, bad food, bad whatever. And so bad things can't be good worship, but Abraham here says no. I will have faith and do the unimaginable and it will be good and it will be worship. It will give worth to God who is worth it all. Worth it all. It's worship. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, uh, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, uh, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, uh, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, I studied undergrad psychology. I've done marriage counseling, some family counseling, some coaching, things like that. Um, Have you ever thought when you heard the story, like, what was Abraham thinking and what was Isaac thinking? Like, hey, dad, hey, um... See the fire, the knife, and the wood. What's that for? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He will provide for himself. He's not saying, Abraham, I need you to provide for me a burnt offering. No, God is the God who provides. God is the one who brings about all that he needs. He is self-sustaining, all-powerful, eternal, outside of time and space, not restrained in the same way we are, except by the restraints that he places on himself by his character, so that when people say, God is tempting me to sin, we can say, no, he's not, because God does not tempt us to sin. God leads us to testing, and he allows us to be tested, but we know by what God has revealed of himself, that which is expressed, and so while he is limitless and infinite and all-powerful, God also does not deny his character. 
Abraham trusting, going, moving forward, God will provide for himself the right sacrifice. So the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that God's generous provision is founded in his character. Or founded from, it comes from who he is. When God provides, it's not because uh, he's going to just act because he decided to in that moment. God is always faithful to provide. Now, he may not be providing what we want, when exactly we want it, but he is always faithful and right with his yes, with his not yet, and with his no. We can trust God to provide, and Abraham showing us this, that at the right time, God will provide a sacrifice for himself. He will provide. God isn't just considered generous because of what he has done, and I think we have a hard time with that. Well, God's been generous to me because of these actions, because of this proactivity, which partly is true. But God in and of himself is generous to us because he is generous. And since we are created in God's image, and while sin has tarnished our our character and our hearts and our minds, and Christ is redeeming us, restoring us, we are then called in response to reflect God's glory, who he is by becoming a generous people. Generous in our thinking, generous with our grace, generous with all that we have, our time and resources. We are called to be generous because our Father in heaven is generous. However, sin brings about deception and it starts our own spin in our mind. Well, I'm, I'm a pretty generous person because I do this, I give this, I've been this, all these type of things. But in quite honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us at times have areas of selfishness that we struggle with. We're selfish. And at times we're greedy. And while we might be generous with resources, we might be stingy with our time. Or while we might be generous with our time, we might be short with our resources. While we might be people who don't punish people who deserve to be punished, we don't extend grace to those who need grace, meaning forgiveness and releasing them. This idea of generosity goes far beyond just Stuff and wealth. It goes towards how we interact and how we forgive and how we show grace. Because of who God is and what he provides, God's character is generous. Abraham wasn't just trusting in God's action. Abraham was trusting in God's character. God is a God who provides. We're trusting that he provides. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I don't know if they had like family counseling back then, but can you imagine having your dad, hey, Isaac, come here, lay down, start tying him up, putting the wood around for fire. That's traumatic. And I don't think Abraham was like, man, I love the Lord, so this is easy. I I can't imagine, but I don't want to speak more into the text than is there. But he was obedient. And so was Isaac. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, the urgency and repetition And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, 
seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. In that moment, right when he was going to take the next act of obedience, God calls out in repetition, stop. Now I see, I see that you actually trust God, you fear God, you hope in God, you will obey God even to the point of killing your own son. So the second thing we see in this passage is that the fear of God is a foundation for faith in God. It's the starting place, it's the beginning, coming to realize there is a holy and powerful, almighty, just, true Perfect God who is creator of all things, deserving of all our worship, and being exposed by that reality then exposes us to the fact that we are in grave need of forgiveness and redemption because of all that we have done to disobey God. The writer of Proverbs puts in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The the, the fear of God, the trust of God, God is who he says he is, God will do all that he has promised to do. So as we get to know the word of God and spend time with the people of God, seeing the evidences of the grace of God, we are then able to have deeper trust in his promises. There are instructions in here on how we live our lives. There are instructions in here on how we interact with each other in marriage, with our children, in community, in conflict, with our wealth, with a lack of our wealth. There's instructions in here that if we truly fear God, we will submit to His authority and His Word and His power rather than our own. Fear is a big thing out here. In our hearts, in our community, I struggle. One of my deepest sin areas is fear. And it it plays out in many different ways, in doubt and insecurities. In many, many different ways. And so when I'm believing the truths that I'm perceiving about myself, my surroundings, and other people that aren't founded in the Word of God... My sin then acts out. Your sin does too. And most of the time when people aren't generous with their time or with their wealth, it's founded on fear. There is a fear that God will not provide, that God is not a good God, that God is not generous towards us, that God does not really care for our needs. And so this fear, this foundational fear, this unbelief leads us to act out in faithless ways. And so we become hoarders of grace. We become hoarders of mercy. We become hoarders of stuff. We become hypervigilant with boundaries of our time. And we equate sacrifice with discomfort. If it's uncomfortable, therefore I'm sacrificing. Sacrifice is uncomfortable 
But with the view on the hope we have in Christ, the gain we have through faith, the belief that He has granted us and given us, we were able to be free. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves frequently, what are we fearing? Are we fearful of the opinion of mankind, of men and women around us? Do we fear more what they think than what God thinks? Do we fear that God's not going to provide for us financially? Do we fear that if God, um, he actually knows kind of how greedy we've been, and then he, he won't forgive us, and so our fear keeps us from confession and repentance. Our fear keeps us from being vulnerable with our spouse and with our friends and with our kids. Our fear prevents us from admitting when we're wrong because we're not believing in faith that God knows and God releases because of the accomplished work of Christ. See, Abraham obeyed God to the point of placing his son and binding him on the altar to the point of where he was raising his arm with a knife to destroy his son and return him to ashes. And we have to ask, why? Because he believed God. He believed God would provide a way. He believed God is a generous God. And in fact, our faith in Jesus is founded and rooted in the generosity of God. Your faith in Jesus is evidential of God's generosity towards you. God took that which was spiritually dead, and by His grace and power, as the writer of Ezekiel says, takes out a heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, breathes new life that you are then able to hope and believe in Jesus. Paul wrote to the people in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace, this free, unmerited gift, you have been saved through faith. And this, and this points back to the grace and faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, what happens is when we're fearing God but not believing in faith of who God is and how we can be made right with God, we start acting out in religion. And so we start doing for God and trying to be for God in order to earn something from God. Therefore, we're not taking his relational movement toward us through Christ as a gift, but rather as a bar that we have to strive to earn and then to keep. But in turn, that faith that he's granted us, that faith, the sight of mustard seed, that moment where you came to realize that there is a God and that God would be right to destroy us because of sin, but through his son Jesus made him to become sin so that we could be made right, there becomes this worship. And so we have to sit there and understand that Faith in Christ, our faith is rooted in the generosity of God. He enables us and empowers us by His grace. He grants us and gifts us faith so that we who were unbelieving and dead in our unbelief have life in Him. In Genesis 22, it continues verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord called out to a man named Abram and says, Go to a land of which I will show you. Pack everything you have up. I'm not telling you what's next. Just follow after me. And he said, I will grant you a son. And so in sin and lack of faith, his wife gave him his handmaid or one of her handmaids. And they had a son named Ishmael. By this point, Ishmael had been sent away. And God said, no, this is not what I promised you. And then God gave him Isaac. And as he was walking with the Lord and getting to know the Lord, the Lord commanded him to do that which we could not even fathom. But by walking to God, to the, with God to the point of trusting God to put his own son to death, God counted his faith as his right righteousness. His actions, his works were founded in faith in God's character and what God has accomplished and what God would continue to accomplish. It says, all the nations will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. The writer of Hebrews gives us some, some, some understanding wrapping this up in Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19. He says, by faith, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham had this promise from God that through Isaac, his offspring would be named. God calls him then to give up that promise, seemingly, but Abraham trusted Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son and send him to ashes because he believed God's promises to make a name for himself through Isaac. And so even if he laid hands on him, killed him, and he went to dust, he believed that God who created him would resurrect him. We often ask each other, how's your heart? How's your faith journey going? But sometimes it would be better to ask each other, what are we afraid of? What are we fearing? What are we unbelieving? That if we are aligning ourselves to worship and enjoy God and to trust God and to believe God, what is there to be afraid of? With our hearts, with our relationships, with our trust, with our finances, with our work, with our relationships, what are we afraid of? Because most time our worship is hindered by having misplaced fears. Our worship is hindered by having misplaced fears. The fourth thing, fourth thing we can see is generosity is a part of God's character, therefore, and the source of the blessings of God. So from his character come his blessings. And while God's blessings are not merely things that He does or that He gives us, that is a part of it. 
But God's ultimate blessing is that God has given us himself. The ultimate blessing that we can have is a vibrant, life-giving, increasing, eternal relationship with himself, even though we deserve isolation and shame and destruction and punishment and, and, and all those things. In fact, when our fears are being realized, that is evidence of what we deserve, but God instead gives us himself. And while Abraham was called to give Isaac as a substitute or or, or as an atonement, as a payment, God provided the ram as a substitute. And in the same way as we should die because of our sin, eternally separated from God, He provides His only Son. That's why when you hear John 3.16, John 3.16 should raise up a minor or major Aggie game-like celebration. Where even when we're losing, we're standing and throwing our towels and chanting and screaming and giving ourselves away and humiliating ourselves because we are undignified for the Lord. Because even if we don't see it, we know that He wins. That even if our life is taken, we know that we live forever. That even if we're destroyed or pressed or crushed or abandoned, that we are not left alone. Even when we fail and disappoint, He is restorative and healing and powerful. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we need. That is the God that brings revival. That is the God that heals your marriage. That is the God that delivers you from pornography. That is the God that releases you from your greed and, and holding so tightly because you doubt God's provision that if you're gracious and generous with time, with talent, with money, with everything else, that he is going to hold out on you. We must not be that people. Because that gospel is a false gospel. That's not the truth about who God is. Last week when we talked about prayer, we said, give us this daily bread. You you can hear people on TV saying, give us a million dollars or another jet. That's not what, God's not a vending machine. He's a faithful father that will not give us more than we really can steward well. Why? I can't give because I I don't believe God's going to provide then he's going to keep giving you what you got. This isn't the the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It's the only time in Scripture God tells us to to trust him and test him in Malachi with our giving. I've said this for years since we started this whole gathering, since we planted Christ Community Church. I could care less about your money. I care about your heart. But wherever our money goes, wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is also. And we live in a community that's highly fearful of poverty, highly fearful of going without, highly fearful that our kids, if they don't have the best uh, coaching for hitting or pitching, or they don't have the best schools or the best clothes or the best things or whatever, that they're going to be ruined. Let me tell you the best thing your kids need. You! I'm working 90 hours a week so my kids can have blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. Your kids need you. Your wife, men, need you. There are countless couples 
where the wife is so lonely and the guy is so frustrated because he's working so hard and providing her with everything she wants and it's never enough, it's never enough. That's what he keeps saying. That's what these guys say. It's never enough, it's never enough. Well, the reality is, is the guy's pacifying his wife with stuff instead of giving her what she really needs is community with him. Relationship. We love our stuff. I was talking to Steph a while back about, you know, what does it mean to be a lover of money? And she was like, we're all lovers of money. All of us. But is your fear what, what drives you or is your faith? Your day in, day out, driving to work, spending time with your kids, making hard decisions. Are you motivated by fear? Because if you are, there's no faith there. And when we're motivated by fear, we are living in sin. And there's no room for fear when God gives His only Son. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the cosmos, all things, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Jesus, we have been given all we need. We have been given the grace we need to be forgiven. We therefore have been given the grace we need to forgive. We have been given access to Abba Daddy, our Father in Heaven, who is the great provider. When Jesus talks about God's provision for His people, He says, hey, if you, being wicked, know how to give your kids good, gift, good gifts, how much better then is your Father who is perfect in Heaven? If your kid asks for a loaf of bread, are you going to hand him a stone or a snake? Some of you are like, well, if they earned it, but... No. Those moments of generosity, those moments of selflessness, those moments of faith, those moments of hope are thumbprints of God's grace in your life. They're evidences of God's unrelenting, ongoing love. Those moments where God calls you to step, as we Christians like to call it, out of our comfort zone. I don't like that phrase, but Stephanie's wincing because we laugh about comfort zone, comfort zone. But you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes worship is uncomfortable. Sometimes following Jesus is opposite of following the world. Sometimes living in view of God's generosity based on who He is is convicting. But when it's convicting, the, the aim isn't to run and hide. The aim is to run towards our generous God saying, God, I'm not there yet. Help me. Help me to trust you. Help me to believe in you. Help me to hope in you. It'll start liberating you from hoping in your next, uh, next promotion or your next raise or your next house or your next vacation or your next relationship or your next friend or your next church. But God is who we need. And so when we look at the generosity of God and we look at our own faith or our own fear, we can be challenged to say, compared to God, is there any room for growth in my life and my family to become more generous? Let me help you. Yes. 
Part of the way that you're freed from your fear is taking a step of faith. And not because a preacher or a community group leader or a friend or an elder or a spouse muscles you into doing it. But because in that moment where Jesus is walking through the storm of life on that water and he invites you out to focus on him, he will carry the way. Our fear is a lack of faith. The beginning of faith is a reapportionment of fearing what truly can destroy us in hell, which is God himself and his judgment. And if we understand that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, and we hope in him alone, then we know that nothing, no hardship, no violence, no terror, no poverty can ever have the final say of our lives, ever. That even when we face our failures and we suffer through our sins and we, we harm others, that there is redemptive, salvific hope because of Christ. And we can hope that our God is a faithful, generous God who gives Himself so that we can have Him. That's the God we serve. And although we may not feel it, and maybe our act of worship today, our response today is confession. God, I, I'm more motivated by fear of, of the unknown than I am of fear of respect of you. Help me. Or God, I am more led by greed and self-centeredness towards my family, towards my friends, towards our church, towards those in need. God, I, I agree with you. Help me. And at just the right time, He will give you the grace that you need. Because God has always provided exactly what His people need when they have needed it. And I don't know about you, but I know many of us, we need grace. We need faith. We need freedom from our fear so that we can step into the joy we were meant to have in God through Christ. And if you've never experienced that, if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then I want to invite you today to say, God, I fear a lot of other things, but I've never rightly feared you. I realize you are who you said you are, and that my only way to be made right with you is through your son, Jesus. And I would love to pray with you about that. After we're done praying, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And myself and a few of our leaders will be along the walls available to pray over you and with you. If you've not tasted and seen the Lord is good, come and taste and see. Trust in Him. If you have, but you're living in fear, take that step of faith. Let's pray together.